Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 14th, 2022. I'm on the road in New York City, as you can tell, perhaps, from the hotel room in my background. We've been doing this show for a while now. It's rather shameful how long. Uh, it's more than a 10-year-old show. Back in uh, July of 2012, almost exactly 10 years ago, July the 16th, 2012, I had a young man on the show called Ryan Holiday, who had a new book out uh, about his own confessions as what he acknowledged uh, he was a, a media manipulator. Uh, the book was called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. It was pretty successful. And then um, Ryan has gone on to bigger and better things. He's now become one of the world's leading authorities on Roman stoical philosophy. Uh, it's hard to make this kind of stuff up, but he's a best-selling writer. He has books like Ego is the Enemy. He has a trilogy, The Way, The Enemy, and The Keys, done extremely well. He's also the host of The Daily Stoic, um, a daily show about stoicism. Um, he's an authority on Marcus Aurelius, the Roman inspiration behind stoicism. And as I said, a little bit of an expert on the whole stoical school. So it's particularly intriguing to me when I got a pitch from a new book called Verissimus. It's a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius uh, and stoicism. Uh, comes with a blurb from Ryan Holiday, my old friend, and it's written by um, Donald Robertson, who's also an authority on Stoicism. And I'm thrilled that Donald is joining us from uh, his perhaps new home in Montreal. Donald, um, congratulations on the new book, Verissimus. It's, um, uh, it's more than just another book on, uh, uh, on, uh, on Stoicism. It's, it's a graphic novel, one of the world's firsts. Before we get to Verissimus, tell me um, how you got into this whole stoical thing. How did I get into this stoicism thing? Well, thanks, Andrew, and thanks for the introduction. Um, I, it's a long story. I got into it a long time ago, about 25 years ago, um, kind of before, actually, it became... I hate saying this because it sounds like I'm saying I was into stoicism before it was cool. But actually, when I first started reading about stoicism and writing about it and stuff. There weren't many books on it. It was before, I think, Ryan Holiday's books had come out and uh, it was kind of a niche subject. And then very quickly it became a thing, like it started to become more and more popular. So I did my degree in philosophy and then I trained as a psychotherapist and counselor. And I was looking for ways to combine the two things basically. And I started off looking at the connection between existential philosophy and psychoanalytic uh, therapy, like Freud and Jung and stuff like that. And then that wasn't really working out for me. So I decided to start again from scratch. And it was at that point that I stumbled across the Stoics, who were the only major school of ancient philosophy that I hadn't studied really as an undergraduate. I studied Plato and Aristotle and stuff, or they were one of the few that I hadn't studied. They tend to be left off the undergraduate curriculum. 
And I started to train in cognitive behavioral therapy. And I realized that cognitive behavioral psychotherapy is inspired by Stoic philosophy. So it kind of came together very naturally for me. And yeah, I, I never looked back, basically. I'm not sure if looking back is something that Stoics think highly on, of or not. Um, but perhaps you might outline in your mind what men like or what a man like Marcus Aurelius um, was thinking, how he, how he founded a school, and what exactly Stoicism is. Well, Stoicism was old by the time that Marcus Aurelius got into it. It had been around actually for a long time, like about five centuries almost by the time that Marcus Aurelius is the last famous Stoic. And it's the odd thing, the riddle in a way, is that it went out in a blaze of glory. He's the most famous Stoic. And then we hear virtually nothing about it after that. Like it kind of fizzles out. And Stoicism began around 300 BC with a Phoenician merchant, so a foreign immigrant who was shipwrecked near Athens called Zeno of Citium, came from Cyprus. And he studied all the schools of philosophy in Athens, basic pretty much. And then he, for a long time, for about 10 years, we believe, and then he decided to make his own school of philosophy. And it's called Stoicism because he went back to the Agora, the Athenian marketplace where Socrates used to discuss philosophy a couple of generations earlier. And he started doing philosophy out in the open with all comers like, you know, it became a kind of exclusive thing. He took it back into the marketplace, back into the street. And he did philosophy in a public building called the Stoa Poikile, or the Painted Porch. This is a shaded public building in the Agora. And so that's where Stoicism got its name from. And a little bit of trivia for you, many of the ancient schools of philosophy are named after their founder, like Platonism or Aristotelianism or Epicureanism. And the Stoics deliberately didn't do that because they didn't want it to become a kind of cult of personality. And they made a point of emphasizing that Zeno wasn't considered to be perfectly wise. He recognized his own flaws. So they named their school of philosophy after the place that they met rather than the guy that founded it. And the Stoics believed that virtue or is the word is arity in Greek, which is usually translated as virtue, but I think moral wisdom actually would be a better translation. Virtue or moral wisdom is the, the highest and indeed the only true good in life was their kind of radical moral worldview. And that view means that external goods, like mainly wealth and reputation and things like that, are of kind of relative or secondary value to the Stoics. And what really matters is kind of wisdom and developing their own strength of character. Now, that's a, an ethic, but it has an obvious psychological consequence, which is that if somebody could really embrace that philosophy, then they would be less upset. Like if they lost their wealth or if they lost their reputation, it wouldn't be like the end of the world to them because they wouldn't invest absolute value in those things. So the idea even in the ancient world was that stoicism was a philosophy that could lead to a kind of emotional resilience. And in fact, in a sense, the word stoic has almost become synonymous with resilience today. And that's a big area of interest for research among modern psychologists. So it's one of the reasons that stoicism has become popular again. Is it in, in some ways, uh, Donald, stoicism a retreat from the world? Um, you mentioned Plato and particularly um, Socrates, who was an extremely social figure and the foundations of Socratic, I think, political thought. 
were rooted in the idea of community. Socrates chose suicide rather than being expelled from Athens. Is Stoicism in some ways an anti-political philosophy? No, actually, the complete opposite. They, sometimes people have that idea of Stoicism. It's true because Stoicism emphasizes a kind of acceptance, a sort of emotional acceptance. And um, so people think that that means the Stoics would be passive, but that's not what they're teaching. The Stoics looked around and thought some people just get too perturbed about injustice in the world. And then some people sit back and become nihilistic and do nothing about it. And there's got to be like a healthy alternative where we care enough to actually do stuff and fight for justice but not in such a way that we make ourselves neurotic or drive ourselves crazy. And that's really the core of Stoicism. They tried to figure out how they could square that circle. So the Stoics, the, do the doctrine of Stoicism is that the wise man engages in public life if nothing prevents it, you know, is how they, they phrase it. It's kind of in their technical jargon, actually. But the, the Stoics saw themselves as the kind of, um, like the, the heirs of Socrates. They saw themselves very much in the Socratic tradition. That's why they went back to the Agora, where Socrates used to teach, to do their philosophy, again, out in public, engaging with the world. Other schools of philosophy retreated from public life. They went to the gymnasia outside the city walls of Athens, like the Epicureans, for example, similar to the Stoics, but they were the ones that were much more known for retreating behind a walled garden, doing philosophy with a circle of close friends. Like Their slogan over the Epicurean garden allegedly said, live in obscurity which is kind of more what, what you're talking about. The Stoics, on the contrary, said, no, go out into the world, but just don't you know, allow yourself to be driven crazy and neurotic by it. You have to maintain somehow a kind of a certain type of emotional acceptance of detachment in order to cope with injustice and be able to fight against it. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Epicureans who are often uh, written about and thought about and spoken about in the context of, of the Stoics, although... The Epicureans were anything except anything but Epicurean, I, I guess. They gave up worldly delights in, in terms of indulging in them. Um, sorry, Donald, what were you going to say? True. I, actually, maybe worth mentioning, you know, you've, you've spotted something there, which I think is quite important. The names of several of the ancient Greek schools of philosophy kind of became degraded over time. So today, by Epicurean, I think people mean someone that enjoys fine food and stuff, whereas the ancient Epicureans were made their life very simple. They drank barley water and ate cheese and had a very simple diet. Um, and But words like academic, skeptic, cynic, sophist, stoic, that are kind of familiar to us from ancient philosophy, all degraded their meaning over the centuries and now are used to mean something that's not quite the same as, as what those terms originally meant. They're all names of ancient schools of philosophy. I want to get to this idea of Stoicism as a kind of Zen-like philosophy in antiquity. But I also want to talk about the Romans. You mentioned that Marcus Aurelius, who was, of course, um, a Roman emperor from 161 to 180, uh, was the last, the most famous Stoic. He was a Roman. Um, you know... Donald, that these schools of philosophy were founded in Greece and particularly in Athens. There's a huge difference between the Greece of antiquity and the Rome of antiquity, particularly in political terms. Do you think that we should most associate Stoicism or at least its greatest period in the context of Rome rather than Greece? 
That's a tricky one because the the Romans looked back to the the Greeks, like that that was their inspiration. I mean, in the same way that we're reading these Roman writers today, the Romans were all reading the Greeks. You know, they saw they thought Stoicism as being a Greek philosophy, I, I guess. Although actually, the Greeks didn't really think of it as a Greek philosophy. Um, they thought it as a, of it as a Phoenician philosophy that had been kind of imported into Athens. But um, there are big differences. We don't know that much about the early Stoics. We can kind of infer stuff. We have maybe like a book's worth of fragments like that we've gathered, scholars have gathered together. We don't have any complete texts at all from the early Stoics. So we're in this strange situation of only having complete texts from these Johnny-come-latelys like these guys that are like Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius are the main ones, um, writing at the, towards the end in the Roman imperial period, towards the end of Stoicism. And actually, it's a vexed question in philosophical scholarship how much Stoicism actually changed between the time of the early Greeks and the Roman authors. Um, it's difficult to know, and there's some disagreement about that. Probably what changed a bit were their uh, views about sex and their political views. So we've got one source that tells us that Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, had kind of more austere views, and his, his views were kind of moderated a bit by the more sort of urbane Romans. Zeno lived like a beggar. He, he had originally trained as a quote called a cynic philosopher, like he slept in the street and stuff like that originally. Um, and obviously Marcus Aurelius and Seneca didn't do that. Like Roman statesmen that were into Stoicism, like, you know, try to integrate it with what for them would be a normal and quite a privileged lifestyle. But Zeno's politics, from what we can tell, were also pretty radical. He was kind of a, a, a some sort of anarchist or uh, almost a, a, like a kind of a communist or something. Like he, he wanted to abolish the law courts and abolish currency and for property all to be held in common and stuff like that. And his ideal society but i think really the later roman thinkers adapted stoicism to their political climate but nevertheless retained the metaphysics and retained some of the the ethical principles and so on and the psychology your book uh verissimus is a graphic novel of stoicism um it's out today um the stoic philosophy of marcus aurelius what do you think the form of the graphic novel Donald brings to uh, stoical thinking? Obviously, the form wasn't around, at least in the way we think of graphic novels back in the Roman age. But what attracted you about this form of the, uh, of the graphic novel to, to deal with uh, stoicism? Uh, our old friend Ryan... Our mutual friend Ryan Holiday is more of a conventional writer, whereas you're doing a graphic novel. I, I'm not sure you're the artist, but you're the inspiration behind it. You have an artist partner, a Portuguese uh, yeah. artist. Actually, Ryan Holiday has two illustrated books, I believe. Although I don't think they're technically graphic novels, I think they're more like illustrated books. Mm. But so I'm, I'm not entirely the only person that, that's done something like this. Um, and, and also in ancient Rome, you're, you're right, I think you, you were kind of hinting, maybe there were things a little bit like, maybe there's a kind of ancient precursor of this. One of the pieces of archaeological evidence we have about Marcus's reign is a thing called the Aurelian Column, which has a strip that goes around it in a kind of spiral, um, and it commemorates the Marcomannic War, and it, it kind of is a form of sequential art, although obviously it doesn't have speech bubbles and things like that. 
But yeah, this is, in its modern form, this is a, a, a kind of unique thing. It's an unusual way to uh, represent philosophy and, uh, and history like this. It did change my perspective, mainly on the history, I think. I, uh, it made me appreciate Marcus's life more. I think in the meditations, for a number of reasons, which I could go into, but maybe won't right now, the, the meditations, Marcus Aurelius' book, seems kind of abstract and and when we're reading it it's hard not to imagine him in his chamber on his own by lamplight just kind of you know writing his notes down but when we look at the graphic novel and we describe the characters that we know from the roman histories suddenly marcus is surrounded by this ensemble of really colorful dynamic extreme personalities and it becomes clear that his his life wasn't quite like that his life was actually quite complex and colorful and dynamic and his relationships were complex and troubled like so that you know we know someone we know a person in part um through the relationships that they have through the constellation of people that surround them um and when we look at marcus from that perspective i think it really changes our perception of who he was and what his life was like in terms of the philosophy one little thing that i think that emerges for me personally out of doing the graphic novel the Stoics in general um, put a lot of emphasis on contemplating our own mortality. And this idea occurs in other ancient schools of philosophy. Socrates talks about this as well. Uh, he says uh, philosophy is a milite thanatu. It's a kind of rehearsal, a preparation for death. This is an old concept in Greek philosophy, but the Stoics really highlight it. And uh, Marcus talks a lot about this aspect of Stoicism. So it's a technical thing. It's part of the philosophy that he's into, that he talks about it so much in, in his notes. However, when we really try and visualize his life, I think it does become clear that he must have woken up every day and just pinched himself and, and been kind of surprised that he was still alive because he really was surrounded by so much danger and there were so many people dying around him and people were anticipating his death for much of his rule. Um, so if we put ourselves in his shoes, uh, which is easier when we really visualize his life, I think his sense of his own mortality was more imminent and more concrete um, for a longer period of time than it than it would be for most of us today. Did he wear sandals? I assume he did, like most Romans. He's saying putting him in his, in, in his shoes or in our shoes. Yeah. He would have worn uh, military boots, I think, for must, much of his reign when he was in the, the muddy uh, northern so even, even, our, even our fantasies of Romans in, um, in sandals or togas uh, probably is... Uh, is rather uh, short, rather biased. Um, what do you bring to Verissimus for scholars and experts on Marcus Aurelius that might surprise them, that might be making some news? Or is it mostly uh, an attempt to pictorialize uh, Aurelius and Stoicism? Are you bringing any original, unusual, um, uh, controversial take on, on Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius in Verissimus? Probably more on the history, I think. Um, I choose to highlight, in terms of philosophy, I choose to highlight the role of Stoic therapy techniques or Stoic philosophy as a therapy for overcoming anger, because it seems to me like that's one of the main things that Marcus personally says that he was wrestling with. Um, there are bits of the history that I speculate about and I've got theories about. So when you're writing a conventional academic history, you can say one of our sources says this and another one says that. And then one says this, but we don't think he's very reliable. And so you can qualify things more. 
But when you make a movie or a graphic novel, you have to pick an interpretation, like, and you, you have to be a bit more decisive and less ambiguous about things. And so I kind of, and also there are gaps that you kind of have to fill in. I mean, we didn't have to do that much of that, actually, because we have a, a lot of historical information about Marcus's reign, and we tried to stay as faithful to it as we could. Um, and that might surprise some people. After writing this book, I also wrote another book, which is still pending publication for Yale University Press. Uh, they have a series coming out called Ancient Lives, and I wrote biography, a prose biography of Marcus Aurelius for that series. So I had to go into the details and the evidence from a slightly more academic perspective. And there I kind of speculated a, a little bit more. In the graphic novel, one of the main things that I suppose historians might have uh, wondered about is Marcus had to fight a civil war. And there's a little bit of a puzzle about what happened and how he fought it. It doesn't quite add up. Um, mainly because the guy that was uh, opposing him in the Civil War only had um, seven legions and Marcus had about 14. So it seems very one-sided. But I have a theory about what was going on there. And I try to explain that in the graphic novel. Donald, we had uh, Mary Beard, another very distinguished historian of the classical world, a feminist scholar, I guess, in some way. She was on the show last year talking about what we can learn from images of Roman autocrats. They were all men, of course, and Beard is writing in many ways as a contemporary woman, which, of course, is unavoidable. Um, one of the things that I've always taken for granted about Stoicism, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is it was a, a deeply quintessentially male way of thinking about the world. Now, of course, we all know that in Greece and in particularly in Rome, uh, men were preeminent, dominant. So it wasn't a, a world of female rights, and that goes without saying. But I'm curious as to your take on the masculinity of Stoicism, and perhaps that's why it's become so popular with uh, writers like yourself and Ryan Holiday. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to get, there's some validity. Of course, what you're saying is true, right? 70%, we have these demographics now that we've got social media and things like that. So consistently around about 70, 75% of the people that are into stoicism seem to be male, but there's still a significant- That amount. actually surprises me. Sorry to interrupt. I was getting into trouble with the interrupting Donald, but um, I would have actually thought that's a, that's a low number, but anyway, go on. There's, a, there's still a significant minority of people that are into stoicism that are, are female. Um, so I'm going to say something that might surprise you then about stoicism. First of all, I thought you were going to say that Mary Beer doesn't have a very big fan of Marcus Aurelius. From what I understand, that she's not so keen on him. But uh, the Stoics, historically, as it happens, were, I think, perceived as one of the schools of philosophy that were more open. Um, like I said, the other schools were a bit more elite. Let me explain something about um, classical Athens. The philosopher, Socrates did philosophy in the marketplace. Other intellectuals, like the sophists, who were kind of quasi-philosophers that, that came from the generation before Socrates and from his own generation, um, and also some of the philosophers that came later, like Aristotle and Plato, taught in the gymnasia, which are large sports grounds, recreational grounds outside the city walls. So Plato's academy, 
is a gymnasium and so is uh, Aristotle's Lyceum um, and that's where they used to, to teach but women weren't allowed to set foot anywhere near those places they weren't allowed to, to uh, enter the, the area um, and actually neither were foreigners um, or metics like it, it was only uh, Athenian men that would have been allowed into those areas and I, I, I would assume slaves of course as well yeah and uh, Socrates used to teach in the Agora, though, in the marketplace. And we see him wandering about and doing philosophy everywhere he went. So one of the things that Socrates had a reputation for was doing philosophy with rich and poor, with free men and slaves, with foreigners, Athenians, and also, shock horror, Socrates was known for doing philosophy with women. So we have said we have a whole dialogue in Xenophon's Memorabilia Socrates, where Socrates is doing philosophy with a prostitute. Like, and he he his life story somehow, even though it's kind of fragmentary in some ways, involves quite a number, about five or six really colorful and interesting female characters. Um, the Socrates said his philosophical journey, his mission began because of a woman. Uh, her name it, it was the Pythia, the priestess of the, the god Apollo, and she made this pronouncement that no man was wiser than Socrates. And Socrates said that was what instigated him to, to embark on a life of philosophy. But also the maxims of the Pythia are philosophical, like know thyself, gnophysiauton, and uh, all things in moderation are nothing in excess. And there are many other maxims that came from the Pythia, uh, and those became... Uh, themes uh, that run through Greek philosophy. So there was, um, you know, the saying behind every great man there's a great woman. Like there are influential women in Greek philosophy, but they're kind of a little bit behind the scenes or on the periphery. Like in one of our best mouthpieces for the influence of, of women in Greek philosophy is a man, ironically, Socrates, who talks about as, how these women had influenced him. But the, the, the Stoics were like Socrates again in that they thought philosophy should be done with everybody, not just wealthy, young Athenian males, but men and women, rich and poor, like everybody should be uh, encouraged to do philosophy. And that was an unusual view. It was a radical view at the time. So the Stoics had a slogan that virtue is the same in men and women, which is also a radical thing to say at that time. And we have two surviving lectures. We have nothing. Like we have a fragment, we have about 1% of the ancient literature on philosophy that survives today. So we're incredibly lucky to, in that, have two lectures by one of the Roman Stoic teachers that maybe people won't have heard of, a guy called Gaius Masonius Rufus, who was the teacher of Epictetus, incidentally. Um, we have two lectures by him on how it's important to teach philosophy to young girls and how they should be taught the same fundamental things as you would teach to young men, but adapted slightly for their different role in society. So you wouldn't say that Masonius Rufus was a proto-feminist exactly, but he, he certainly fundamentally, he, he had a, a much higher regard for women in philosophy than, than many other ancient thinkers would. But you still, you, you, you haven't answered the question about, the, the second part of the question of why so many young men seem contemporary young men seem fascinated with Stoicism. As you say, at least around 55% of your readers are, are male. And that's very unusual because the vast, when you think of readers of novels, for example, the vast majority of readers are, are female. Yeah. 
what is it about stoicism that attracts young men particularly contemporary young men yeah well philosophy in general is a male-dominated subject right so the those figures actually like and what on one hand it could be a bit misleading because it seems that there's a similar gender bias in groups that are interested in other branches of ancient philosophy as well like so people that are into aristotle are 75 percent men as well and so so it may not be that it's something particularly about the stoic school that we're seeing there it may be something just more generally about philosophy or at least ancient philosophy um but i think there are things about stoicism that may seem appealing to young men and one of them is actually a maybe a misconception in a way people think i said earlier that the meaning of the word had degenerated over time so we usually distinguish between stoicism written with a capital s which refers to the ancient greek school of philosophy and lowercase stoicism which refers to an unemotional coping style um or personality trait like having a stiff up stiff upper lip basically and that's a kind of crude degenerated sort of like caricature in a way of what the original greek philosophy represents and sometimes it actually would be contrary to what the ancient greek school of philosophy means and this is a big deal because there's a significant body of modern psychological research that shows that lowercase stoicism is actually quite unhealthy it's kind of you could say it's even toxic um and that it, for a number of reasons it, it kind of makes people more vulnerable emotionally over the longer term whereas capital s stoicism is the inspiration for cognitive therapy and also indirectly for modern uh, resilience building uh, training approaches both of which are known to be good for you and to lead to improved psychological resilience so you wouldn't want to confuse these two things because one is bad for your mental health and one of them is good for your mental health that's how far apart they actually are now i think some young men may be attracted to stoicism because they think of it they confuse it with just toughness or something like machismo or something like that um and so we kind of see that all over the internet you know there are there are always guys that kind of want to be even tougher than they are already or whatever they want to kind of project project a, a macho image or something and, and sometimes they're drawn to stoicism for that reason and sometimes that's a superficial thing and they kind of read further into it and then they lose interest or sometimes they, they they get further into it and they start to revise their views about you know what uh psychological health actually looks like or or what it is that they're what their goals actually are in life you know that that happens sometimes so sometimes people can be drawn to philosophy for the wrong reasons but then maybe it kind of converts them to a, a better outlook on life uh donald uh last year i also had a actually it was a couple of years ago in december 2020 had a, a historian ruth ben giat on the show writing about her then new book now it's out in paperback strong men how they rise why they succeed how they fall ben giat's an expert on italy both the uh, the rome of antiquity and modern italy mussolini and berlusconi is there any coincidence between the rise of authoritarianism in the world today the putins the berlusconis the trumps the Erdogans, the g's and so on and so forth and the popularity of stoicism this in a sense retreat from the world or at least the philosophy that enables that retreat no i don't and i'll tell you why stoicism has always been in a sense anti-authoritarian and egalitarian 
it, it's the Stoics were known for actually opposing. Uh, I mean, the, in antiquity, if you went back in time and asked that question, people would say, "But the Stoics are the ones that oppose political tyrants. That's what they're most famous for." Um, Socrates like, was a, a critic of, of political tyranny. No, but, but let me rephrase. I, I take your point, and, and you know a million times more about this stuff than I do. My, my point is not that Stoicism supported authoritarianism. My point is that Stoicism provides, um, in a sense, the philosophical armor for living under authoritarianism, which may be one reason why it's popular these days. Well, I'll take what you could have said is this is kind of, I think, Nietzsche's implicit, or it reminds me of Nietzsche's implicit criticism of Stoicism, his criticism of, of Christianity. He calls it slave morality, right? Mm. And he, he doesn't, he makes this criticism kind of indirectly of the Stoics, but he could have just said, um, yeah, the Stoics would be an example of slave morality, right? So this is a morality of a kind of oppressed people that live under a dictatorship. They just have to kind of suck it up and stuff and learn to accept things, learn not to demand as much from life because they have limited control. Now, I guess on the one hand, I'd say the, the odd thing about Stoicism is if we're going to look at who was into it in the ancient world, like it is striking that Epictetus was a slave or a freed slave and Marcus Aurelius was the most powerful man in the world. And we can find many other examples throughout the history of Stoicism of both some of the most powerful and elite people in society finding it a useful outlook in life and also some of the poorest um, and most oppressed people in society finding that it helped them cope with those circumstances. So it could be, yeah, sure. Stoicism is a philosophy that helps people deal with oppressive situations. But it, even today, it's also popular with people that are in positions of power. So I don't think there's anything, you know, I, I think it benefits us in, in, in both circumstances, actually. Um, and again, I, I mean, I think maybe viewers might think behind that there's the criticism that I think we touched on earlier of, of this, the stoicism lead to political passivity, for instance. Right. So is it adapted to kind of the situation of the slaves or is it adapted to dictatorships because it's got to do with just kind of accepting your law and not kind of fighting too much against tyranny? But the, the Stoics teach us, like I said earlier, not to get upset about these things, but to find ways of opposing them, to find the courage and the self-discipline to stand up against tyranny without being overly uh, perturbed about it. The, the, and I think that's important because actually maybe this is worth emphasizing. I think one of the biggest problems that we face in modern society comes from a kind of psychological misconception, in my view, and in the view of the Stoics, that many people feel that they have to get angry in order to have the strength or the motivation to oppose injustice. And the Stoics thought that was a grave error um, because anger often clouds our judgment. And when people fight injustice in a very outraged way, they often risk becoming tyrants themselves and inflicting injustice on other people. And what the Stoics want us to do is to kind of avoid falling into what they see as a psychological trap of fighting injustice, to learn to retain composure and detachment while simultaneously taking action in the service of justice. Yes, and a really important point, Donald, particularly in our age of the internet. Fascinating stuff. You really clearly know your stuff. Uh, your new book, Verissimus, 
the Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius is just out. I think you may even outsell Ryan Holiday, which would be quite an achievement, Donald. I hope you do. Um, congratulations on the new book. What else are you reading these days? Um, uh, are you still reading the ancients or are you more focused on the moderns these days? I always think my reading is really boring because I tend to just be like, oh, I'm just going to go back and read Seneca again. You know, but I do read modern books. I'm reading Robin Waterfield's um, book about the trial of Socrates at the moment, um, which is uh, which is pretty good. And uh, yeah, gosh, I can't remember the the last uh, one of the last biographies that I read that, that I thought was pretty good was kind of obscure. As part of my research, was a biography of Lucius Verus, Marcus Aurelius's adopted brother and his co-emperor. I love biographies. And histories that focus on these kind of peripheral characters because i think often that's the key to getting a more rounded picture of what's actually going on in a period in history so uh, uh that was one lucius verus and the war in the or the defense of the east it was called like that was one of the biographies i enjoyed most recently <laughs>